Hello and welcome to episode three of Rank Up, a monthly on-page SEO podcast where we talk about technical SEO, content optimization, search engine news, and much more. I'm one of your hosts, Ben Gary, and I am joined once again by my regular co-host, Ed Wilson. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Uh, the sun is out, but we're all stuck indoors, so what a better time to you know, spend time, time doing podcasting. <laughs> we can enjoy the warmth coming through our windows yeah. and uh, dream, of, dream of going for a picnic. <laughs> uh, yes we are I, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast but we are very much still in the lockdown uh, at the time of recording <laughs> um but we are also joined in our lockdown uh by our special guest for this month paul r smith how are you paul hello yeah i'm not too bad thanks yourself yeah i am i'm doing all right this week has been a little bit of one of those kind of formless shapeless blobs of a week um but uh, where everything sort of seemed to melt into one i think we're in like week four of the lockdown or something now um have you have you noticed with your like working weeks you've been able to like really categorize them so like some weeks have been like where you've been really productive and like things have been going well whereas certain weeks have been like you've got like drag yourself over the finish line things have been good (laughs) it feels like especially within this you really notice certain like working patterns yeah well, yeah, for me, anyway, I mean, I've noticed for me that what the, the number of calls I have scheduled makes a massive difference because last week I had it felt like I had a call every hour or something going on and every day felt manic and I was exhausted at the end of every day. But the week absolutely flew by, whereas this week has been the polar opposite. I think I got all of my calls out of the way. And now I have barely anything on this week and it's felt like this this shapeless mess of time that I don't know what to do with. Yeah, definitely. It's weird as well it's because I think certain tasks take longer than you'd expect or shorter as well just because of like this new situation with working. But as you mentioned with the calls, it's there's just so many of them now, isn't yeah. there? Like, <laughs> yeah. Certain clients have never spoke to them, you know, as much. But that's been the positive side of things as well, because it's, I think it's maybe brought the relation, or it's made the relationship stronger because you have these, um, well, we do have like the weekly, bi-weekly calls anyway, but it feels like it's there's more constant communication, which is which is good. Um, yeah, especially when you're working quite closely on certain campaigns as well. It's, it's nice when clients who you'd normally see in like a full suit and tie or something are just sitting there at their kitchen table in a hoodie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It definitely does. I definitely feel like with a lot of the calls I've had, unless there's, there's no time, masks. But no, there, well, no masks yet in in more ways than one. <laughs> um, but no, it does. It does feel like obviously there are people for like businesses where this is a really sort of difficult, difficult period. But it does feel like there's been a bit of camaraderie in some ways as well. Uh, and I do feel like sort of relationships with some clients have improved as a result. Um, but obviously, so much of it just depends on what each individual business is going through. Because obviously, there are other clients which are, are just you know really going through it right now and and having a pretty tough time. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, all of that is to say that uh, once again, we we are recording in lockdown um, and we just want to uh, mention that caveat at the start because it does mean that our uh, recording quality is not um, exactly at the level that we would want it to be. 
Uh, we had the same thing last week um, and uh, worked through a, a few sort of technical difficulties with that that we are hoping to learn from. And hopefully this week will be will be better and we'll keep improving as much as we can um, for as long as we're doing this in lockdown. Although obviously we would like to be back in the office with our nice mics around the table actually talking face to face. Um, but at the moment, that is uh, a dream for the future. So please bear with us um, in this time and we will do our best to deliver decent quality audio uh, within our means uh, at the moment. Cool. Excellent. So shall we get into the uh, into the episode properly? And we will start with a proper introduction for our guest this week, Paul. Uh, Paul, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, what your career has been like so far and what you do at Impression currently? Um, yeah, so basically I'm one of the counterpart content specialists to your very own Ben Gary here. The C3K from my R2D2. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm if I'm that the right Well, I don't know that. <laughs> Hold on. I think, I think that goes the other way, pal. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's uh, Ben Ben is the youthful and uh, you know, energetic member of the office who has always got bigger and ready to go do things than I'm the old, wizened hermit that uh gets asked the odd question and otherwise is kept <laughs> mostly to himself um i'm not sure but, if, i'm not sure if the star wars metaphor really extends <laughs> to that at this stage <laughs> i would definitely say r2d2 is the more useful of the two not that there was some subtext in me calling you c3po <laughs> earlier i'm just enjoying the fact that we're three episodes into this uh, podcast and we've somehow have created two uh, uh star wars metaphors of even only just three episodes <laughs> yeah true um but no sense yeah essentially for a lot of the time i'm spending with clients to review and optimize their content strategies and, and how they portray their business to audiences and you know to organic search in and of itself yeah. career-wise um, I've been in the business, the business for about five years now, roughly, yeah. give or take, kind of lost count. Um, originally started as a copywriter with absolutely no experience in SEO, never even heard of the word. Um, and through just working on e-commerce platforms uh, in-house, okay, you know, it kind of just became a topic of conversation as it became more important to the business. And I kind of picked it up yeah. through that and it's kind of been going on ever since. And then joined impression about two years ago uh yeah. through being in a wedding band so that worked. <laughs> i forgot that was how you uh how you made the connection to impression that is yeah exactly and uh you haven't always been a content specialist at impression though have you that this has been a slightly more recent thing yeah so content specialist role was from november this year so i guess that's about six months now um, yeah, which has been really great. Um, it's been really nice moving into that role. Prior to that, uh, I was essentially uh, a member of the strategist team, and working as a manager of accounts and dealing directly with clients for sort of broader SEO purposes. So you know, that yeah. kind of runs the gamut. Yeah, awesome. We'll, we'll talk a lot more about that in the main section. Um, believe we're going to sort of chat through what being a content specialist means. Uh, what that sort of approach of kind of strategist versus specialist looks like in practice and and generally what specializing in SEO looks like. I think actually all three of us on this call 
uh, do have specialists in our title. We've all sort of chosen that route for either technical or content. And it will just be uh, quite good to have, a, I think, a bit of a chat about how modern SEO has got to that point um, where yeah. it's a lot more common to specialize rather than just be sort of a, a generalist, as may have been more common um, sort of a few years ago. Um, and Paul has lots of other wisdom to offer us on uh, content. And we've got a few questions from the team along those lines as well. So we'll have a big discussion around that uh, in a few minutes' time. But first, we have our regular top stories segment where we uh, want to round up our kind of favorite news and views from across the SEO world over the last month or so-ish. And there's been a few interesting things cropping up this month. I think the, the story that I will start off with is probably one of the bigger news announcements that we've had for a little while from Google, unrelated to any sort of algorithm, uh, algorithm stuff or anything like that. Um, but there was an update a couple of days ago about Google Shopping, where uh, if you didn't see it, Google announced uh, around April the 21st, or maybe possibly April the 20th, I'm not sure when the exact announcement came, um, that they were opening Google Shopping up to free product listings. Uh, Google Shopping has been paid only since about 2012, but Google has now announced that over 2020, um, they're gonna be transitioning to having organic or free listings there again. Um, which means that sort of just by kind of uploading product information and essentially having a store presence on Google Shopping, you would be eligible for your products to show and you wouldn't have to pay a thing. There will still be ads there, um, but they will be, I believe, at the top or the bottom of the page uh, as opposed to being the majority of the listings. Um, and the reasoning uh, given in an article that I'm looking at here by Ginny Marvin on Search Engine Land. Uh, the reasoning behind this for Google is that they need to compete with Amazon. Uh, obviously, Amazon has become the world's biggest aggregator of different products, uh, and Google Shopping is lagging behind that. So Google wants to keep more people on their platform, uh, spending money through their payment gateways and um, essentially giving you no reason to need to go to Amazon or anywhere else to do your business. Um, so this has been quite quite big news, I think it's fair to say, because this has been an important paid shopping channel for a long time. Um, but it's important to note that, as far as I'm aware, this doesn't affect the shopping ads in uh, the regular sort of page one of SERP listings. Is that how you guys understand it as well? Yeah, from my understanding, they'll people can then obviously display well, their feed will now be able to be offered from a for, for like a from a free perspective however there will be sponsored listings very similar yeah. i guess in the way that um, amazon conducts their search result approach that you're able to bid for positions in the listing um however they will be supported by then um you know free positions that you know yeah. that can be provided by the data feed so my sort of main question for you guys around this then is who is this good for and who is it bad for? Because it's, I mean, on the face of it, I suppose it seems like great news for SEOs, bad news for people in you know, PPC and paid media. Is it, is it that straightforward um, or is it maybe not going to make as much of a difference as we think it will? Um, in my opinion... I think it's there's a lot of positives in it, and I think that can. Although you've mentioned around PPC, I think and it, 
just, we'll list it in the show notes, but I think Liam, uh, our head of PPC, has created a great blog post on his thoughts on this as well. Yeah. So that's well worth a read. Um, I think it's a positive for a lot of areas, including the PPC team. I think it's good for stores, online stores in general. It'll be allowing them their ability to sh showcase their products for free. Yeah. Um, if necessarily maybe new companies or anything like that that don't have the um, budget that allows them to compete heavily for a variety of products. Um, yeah. And also I feel like the data feed that, or the, well, the, the data feed that they supply to the merchant center relies a lot on, um, I think there's like keyword targeting behind the, with the individual products, but yeah. hopefully the algorithm rely heavily still on the product descriptions and managing that data, that data feed with actual you know, quality information in terms of product mm -hmm. specific um, data. So I think from that perspective, if you manage your feed well and are able to supply a lot of a lot of online stores will benefit from it that don't mm -hmm. uh, maybe need to the market and they'll allow a lot of, you know, people to showcase their products for free. So I think it's positive for, from that side of things. Okay. From the SEO perspective, I think we can take a lot of insight in terms of product performance from this area. So we can certainly see Maybe if we're working on um, websites that heavily invest in SEO, we can actually see from an e-commerce perspective, we can actually use this data to inform SEO strategies of what you know free products are uh, benefiting, mm. you know, and, and performing well. And then both from the PPC perspective, I imagine if a, a free product is performing well, and that may be likely due to it's really uh, it's reviewed quite heavily. They've mm. got a lot of um, product information for that and generally converts well through the free listings then they could potentially bump that up with budget to uh, and pay for a you know a product listing ad um specifically and compete from yeah. that side of things and actually push more momentum on that specific product as well so i think it is uh i think it's generally positive news i mean like you said the and exactly what the the publication said there it is there shift to compete against amazon <laughs> rather than yeah. them thinking oh we need to do the the best approach by uh e-commerce stores but i think there's yeah. a lot of positives to take out of it certainly okay do we, think, cool. do we think that there's going to be an element where it's going to increase kind of like um cost though through ppc if there's fewer positions available because they've been um, taken up by free listings do we not think that that could actually drive more competition in ppc i uh, i Potentially, I mean, Google will always be favoring the area that makes them more money. So potentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, I've not personally. I mean, I know we focus more on it, the SEO side of things. I've not heard anyone's opinion on that, like CPC side of it yet. So that mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, that will be the biggest thing for their um, that will that kind of threat in that domain, wouldn't it, for them if it yeah. just ramp up CPCs? But from my understanding, it's not. Well, I've not seen a discussion around that yet. So, yeah. I think it's Pretty interesting as well because obviously it's coming It's coming from like the product merchant feeds, right? Like where they're yeah. picking their, yeah, so that's yeah, where yeah. they're going to be pulling the organic listings from. So let's say that if you're, you've got your like e-commerce feed to be set to update every day with like the product stock and everything, mm -hmm. like naturally, as we know that organic search moves so much slower than paid yeah. search in terms of listings updating and, and 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 crawling and things like that. Like, I wonder how accurate the free listings are going to be because obviously, if they if they if it goes at any kind of the level of speed that you know standard organic search are going to go at, except yeah. you're you're in a high turnover. You know, you 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 mm. turn over a lot of products in your 
in your vertical, there could be a lot of user frustration where people are clicking on products that Google believes is in stock or hasn't updated their listing yeah. from the feed yeah. and then it's out of stock. So I think it'll be really interesting to see like how it matures yeah. when, it's, when it's released. And I guess that stems onto another really important topic moving forward on this is that then whose responsibility is the performance of yeah. the, uh, the shopping yeah. feed now? Because obviously from a PC, PPC perspective, if they, if they are heavily invested in, sh in shopping, then yes, it should obviously be main maintained from the PPC perspective. However, now with a, if it does, if a certain client starts seeing a spike in performance from the free listing area, um, is that considered organic? Is it on the remit of the organic or SEO team to actually manage the feed and make sure you know quality information is being supplied? I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to look at moving forwards, and there's, there's going to be a lot of like responsibility discussions around that too. Yeah. yeah, and I think the other consideration with all of this as well, I I personally don't use the Google Shopping tab. I don't. I think maybe have once or twice in the past, but am I right in thinking that? Google will give you the ability to sort of do everything in Google. You won't you won't actually get clicks to your site through having these free listings. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. So funny enough, I do use Google Shopping, but the only time I use Google Shopping is when it's a product I know I want. So I'll do mm -hmm. a direct uh, like product title or a direct brand title. I would never search like a non-branded term and then use shopping. I normally use yeah. I normally use uh, Google Shopping for like price comparison. So for example, yeah. mm. <laughs> this is just an example. I was looking for like a, a veggie friendly chorizo the other day. It's <laughs> normally quite expensive. So I put the actual brand term in Google and then I couldn't be bothered to go through the search listings. I know a lot of SEOs will be, can't believe I won't be able to, you know, <laughs> I've said that. On you. I just click the, I click the shopping listing and automatically I was able to see every price on that page and I was able to go away and pick the best price yeah. with the, what seemed the best shipping as well. So I use it from that perspective. So yeah, I use that within the shopping area. I mean, I have yeah. to say when I'm, when I'm shopping for board games specifically, I don't know. I don't know why board games, but I will. I will get prices basically from the shopping ads that uh, just yeah. appear at the top of the surf, and, and I will often convert through shopping ads rather than organic. Sorry again. Sorry to SEOs. <laughs> no, no. I, I think that's really a good point. Like I can imagine that there's going to be quite a few um, e-commerce sort of like industries that could actually really benefit from it because. For example, from my experience, like I do exactly the same thing that you do, Ed, in terms of like price comparison, very specific mm -hmm. kind of model search. But like there are certain things that Amazon just doesn't service correctly. So like for, for me, I'm a musician junkie and I'm always buying a new instrument. Amazon yeah. just doesn't just doesn't service that. So it's actually I think there's a lot of ground that could be made in certain industries if they kind of recognize that perhaps their product lines aren't being properly picked yeah. up by Amazon, then yeah. it could become like a really core part of like an organic strategy if it, if it does turn out to be successful. Yeah. I mean, because from my perspective, Amazon are really good at supplying the essentials, right? So like batteries yeah. or anything like that. And you, you, you can co easily convert from them. But like you said, Paul, when you're searching for a specific guitar where like you want a specific model or brand, that's where kind of Amazon can fall short compared to Google because they'll have a range of specialist websites competing in this space. And that's when you'll be able to have like a Fender Telecaster popping up in the search, result, uh, search results rather than whereas Amazon probably 
aren't able to bring those specialist products to the table. Whereas at least with this area now, Google will be able to be a bit more precise and go a bit more into niche areas, I guess. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think, it was, I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Cool. And what would be nice as well is if we get some data on this in Search Console. So I think that's a bit of a question around it now at the moment. If you could have like a shopping tab in the Search Console performance. Um, yeah. You, that would make it a lot easier, I think, to actually do something strategic around this rather than just seeing a bit of a side benefit. Fingers crossed. Yeah, Cool. So we move on to the next topic then. Otherwise, we'll spend our whole episode on this one. Um, oh, I thought, oh, I thought that was the entire podcast. Well, you know, we're not, we're not capable of keeping it quite that short. You know, we're SEOs. We like long form content. Um, cool. Do you want to uh, do your website taxonomy article next? Yeah, yeah, cool. So this is um, published on the Search Engine Journal, April 20th by John McAlpin. <clears throat> Hopefully I've said that right. Um, yeah. It's nothing groundbreaking, you know, it's it's like pretty relatively straightforward stuff if you've kind of been in the business for a while, but I just think he did a really good job of actually discussing a kind of the difference between sort of like taxonomy, architecture, and some of the terms that kind of often get interchanged with each other, especially like I've noticed kind of some of my clients have spoken about this and, and, and they don't really see the difference between yeah. the two. And he just does a really good job again of kind of actually also visualizing a how kind of your URL taxonomy affects your site architecture and like the impact that's going to have. And then he just also breaks it down further to kind of give you a really good understanding of an optimized example of such like URL taxonomies, how Google interprets them. And he even goes into the, the depths of discussing internal links in content silos and an actual approach to creating scalable URL structures. Because I think yeah. this is something that since I've become a content specialist, and again, I know we're probably going to talk a bit more about kind of the work that we do day to day. Yeah. This is yeah. an area where it's come up so much more since I've been doing this in like the past six months, um, where I'm actually reviewing and auditing kind of site structures and, and how their content is laid out and how it's being kind of fed to the user and to Google, both through kind of the internal linking process and actually kind of how it's positioned within the site architecture itself. Yeah. Um, and I think I see it time and time again where website owners and businesses are creating content or they're creating pages to meet current needs and current demands. And yeah. they forget about kind of that future-proofing element, that scalability. Um, so yeah. I just think this is a really good article for actually kind of showcasing the options that you have as a business to create something that works for Google, for the user, and for yourself as a business. So. Yeah. So when you're looking yeah. at site architecture sort of day-to-day -day now, what what sort of things are you looking at to, to audit that? And what sort of things are you looking to change uh, if you do need to make recommendations for your clients? Yeah, so it's changes it's obviously going to be different for every business but i think the general rule of thumb that i like to kind of go by is um making sure that you always have a place that you can go so mm. making sure that your structure supports your future ambitions whether that's additional informational content or yeah. expanding your service offering or even adding new sections to the site without sort of impacting on what you've already got mm. um making sure that 
um, kind of your, your URL taxonomy is logical, easy to interpret, makes sense to the user, um, yeah. and again, kind of supports that cascading sort of silo structure. Um, yeah. That I think has become like a much, much bigger deal, especially as kind of content become uh, an even bigger part of SEO kind of in the recent years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all... Then, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, 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 go ahead. <laughs> That is the classic, sorry, go ahead is becoming the phrase of our time. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I was just, uh, well, what was I going to say? I was going to say that um, I think all three of us have sort of worked on multiple websites now where we've seen the impact of content silos. I know it's a bit of a buzz yeah. phrase um, and it is bandied around a lot, but it does. it's one of those ones that does work and it is worth the time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I was just going to say like, and I hope I'm not stepping on Ed's point here, but it, <laughs> it, it's just so clear that um, Google's ability to kind of interpret how a site structure has become much more profound, mm. um, that it really feels like the way that you approach kind of internal linking structures and the way that you actually approach your site structure is actually having a direct impact, like like you say. Mm. Um, I know it is definitely something that does kind of get passed around a lot as, as a bit of a buzzword, but it it's working. And if you business can invest in actually creating that like level of content at scale and can ha, has the sort of resources to create those silos, then then yeah, it definitely can work. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Just to expand on that point, I was yeah, it's it's very similar to what I was going to mention in terms of even in Google's documentation for search engine optimization, they mention around the how helpful the breadcrumb structure is, and breadcrumb structure, you know, is very closely aligned towards mm -hmm. the organization of content. They say they are able to use a breadcrumb breadcrumb structure to understand you know, basically the structure of the website and the relationship between pages and, you know, parent and child pages and and basically extracting the benefit from that. But I also think like when we're talking about these taxonomies and like silo structures, it plays into the, just the contextual signals between pages as well. You're able to provide so much more contextual linking once you have this structure in place through anchor text, but then also in terms of click depth as well. So we also, mm -hmm from an SEO perspective, making sure that certain pages that are so many clicks away from the home page is critically important, especially if that, that page or area um, is looking to target like a, a high volume keyword or, you know, a, a large group of, yeah, certain audiences. Um, and then just to like end my point on that is, I think me and myself and Ben, we've been working on a lot of projects recently where we've had this discussion of blogs versus um, like more like hubs. And yeah. I think like it's and it whenever like it used to be a few years ago that all like content that didn't sit outside all content that sat out as service pages just got pushed to the blog. Whereas we also we discussed a lot recently that blogs in nature just the the the, the content basically gets shoved in, into the back of the the website hierarchy. So eventually yeah. it just becomes so many clicks away from what the user can actually see unless it's you know linked to externally well from um mm. you know other websites on the internet or you've promoted it from a service page or something like that it's just going to yeah. be lost and devalued over time and your your new audiences or new visitors aren't going to ever see this whereas 
moving forward, I feel like every website should consider that actually you don't have to put all like new content into a blog um, if it sits out to service pages. And that's when hub pages or helps and you know guides or anything like that can be an important area of your website because you can just have them in these places which you know are very forward facing in terms of your audience of when they're on the website you're they're able to see it through the navigation or it's into you know it's internally linked well and it's and you can also you know frequently update it as well based on new information or if you're aiming to improve uh keyword performance on that specific page you can certainly just update it without having to like you know reposition it on the website within the blog so i feel like every website um companies or you know publications or anything like that should just have an understanding that not all out of service page content should just naturally go to the blog it can actually actually uh, it can actually be situated somewhere else on the website that can have a a better impact yeah mm. absolutely yeah, shall we go to the final article then which will lead into our main sort of content topic anyway today which is your article on reading online ed yeah Cool. Yeah. So this uh, article is how people read online, new and old findings. It's by, is it Kate Moran or yes. Moran? Um, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Um, yeah. And basically the summary of this is it's looking back at findings from a series of eye tracking studies over 13 years ago. Uh, and basically they see that the fundable, fundamental scanning behaviors remain constant, even as de design changes. Um, so they've used like a typical examples of um, eye tracking going from um, left to the right down then uh, right to left then left to right and then down again mm. uh, and they've used example on the apple watch page and how this is um you know basically happening but then also most frequently or most recently they've looked into kind of complex search results by google um, yeah. this is due to the introduction of new SERP layouts knowledge panel everything that everything new that google has uh, introduced recently and basically they've they've um, basically identified a new uh, pattern which is called the pinball pattern where it goes right to uh, no left to right <laughs> downwards up all over the place and yeah. basically shows you the impact of actually the search results changes then the impact of the knowledge panel and also how you know basically people into working with search result pages has fu fundamentally changed in terms of what we once knew it as um and they also mm. go into sort of uh baidu the uh chinese search engine baidu yeah the chinese search engine um and explained actually it's quite similar to how google uh the eye pattern and the eye tracking with that and how that works as well uh which is which i think is quite interesting um mm. What they also touch upon in this article is what hasn't changed. So I think these are really good, important topics. Um, I think it's the level of motivate the level of motivation. So how important is the information to the user? And what they see with this is that if it is quite an important topic, then users spend a lot more time, you know, consuming that information. Whereas if it is a a question or an, something that they're that's something quite lighthearted or they want to, you know, it's not that that critical then they just skim the the first opening paragraph and then the mm. rest of the content just is potentially ignored um but then also that really impacts the level of focus so how focused or unfocused is a user on the task at hand so it shows case that with like mortgage articles where the user is more likely to go away and read through it whereas something again mm. which is more lighthearted, they're less likely to go through like two three pages of of that yeah. and i thought that was quite a, an interesting subject as well yeah there's loads of really interesting stuff in this article. Um, and Paul, I think it it goes into some of the stuff that we 
we sort of have to think about all the time with um, recommendations for content. But things things like uh, considering what the user is trying to achieve and how that bears on the way they actually consume content is mm-hmm. is quite interesting because that they've got here that one of the things that um, affects the amount of time and energy readers spend on a page is whether they're looking for a specific fact or browsing for new information or researching a topic and how that fundamentally changes things. Um, and that kind of alongside the fact that people mostly scan rather than read online content, which I found to be one of the more interesting things in this article for me. Um, yeah. I mean, does we know that we've known for a long time that the way we write online has to be different to the way you'd write in, in say, a book. But when you're working on content or making recommendations, writing from scratch, whatever it is you're doing, how important do you think it is to sort of factor in the online medium? Does that change much for you? Um, or, is a, or is a good article always going to be a good article? Um, I mean, I think there's probably two different things, perhaps, between like a good article and a successful article. Mm. And I suppose that's the way that I tend to categorize it. Like, I think you can write a good piece of content that goes absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Um, if, you know, if you're not respecting the, the, the needs of the piece. So it mm. very much does come down to kind of what is being said here is like, what is the user actually trying to be achieved? And I mean, if that isn't your primary focus at any time, then your your article isn't going to succeed i think yeah. that definitely i've noticed that i'll actually spend more time planning the structure of my content where yeah. i probably might might have not done in the past i tend to be a bit more um kind of i, I just kind of allow it to kind of form as i'd write it but now kind of understanding yeah. how you know, the touch points that I need to provide to the user to keep them engaged and, you know, the brevity of, at which I could actually explain something um, plays a big part in how my content creation or, or, or even like content review efforts are kind of going. So what kind of, when you think structurally about a piece of content and thinking about the fact that, you know, users are scanning rather than reading and that sort of thing, what are there sort of some general good practice ideas for online content writing that you will try and make sure you hit in each article? Yeah, um, I think like essentially you need to make sure that don't, well, firstly, don't create one of those like really waffly first paragraphs that's got yeah. like cliches and like all that kind of jazz <laughs> in it because, you know, we've done that. We don't need it anymore. Um, yeah. I don't think you need to do the, you know, headlines of, you know, five things you'll never believe number four, but <laughs> I think making sure that your headlines are just really succinct and clear and yeah. especially in terms of search, meet the search intent. Um, that's going to be the most appropriate way to keep users kind of funneling through your content. So, you know, have whatever that primary page focus is, Go straight, go straight for that content. Don't don't try and beat around the bush and talk about three or four different things before you eventually reach that five hundred words in. Mm. You know, quick introductory yeah. paragraph or whatever, and and go straight for it. Sorry, go ahead. Ed. 
This is a this touches on your point about the structure of content, and this is a person, like I said, from a more technical specialist route. So I'm like an outsider looking in <laughs> with the content side of things. But, and I'm not sure if you guys have been in this scenario before, but whenever like a friend of yours sends you an article or a piece of content on WhatsApp or email or anything like that, and it is more interesting to the subject is more interesting to them than it is to you and they send it you and you briefly skim over it and you don't really find it that valuable so you you know click off it after like 10 seconds or anything like that but then when at a later date they refer to the article and bring up something really interesting that actually goes on makes you think wow but it's because it's that piece of information is hidden within the continent or it's a lot further down and actually the article didn't appeal to you because it didn't engage with you in the introduction but yeah if you did spend more time reading into it you have actually got there was a lot of interesting points in it and it actually would have captured your interest however i understand that actually that article was again talking about maybe a subject that is more catered towards the person that sent it to me so actually it does the job of engaging users that or a person that is more interested in it and therefore shouldn't really appeal too much to me because initially you know i'm not that interested in that kind of topic but therefore when we're talking about like web content actually from a marketing perspective you should actually make sure that all content is actually appealable or appealing to everyone right so i think that's maybe an interesting topic on like structure of content of not only engaging those that are probably interested into it, interested yeah. in that specific information, but actually people that are more likely to skim over it is engaging them with engaging with yeah. them from I, the, the get-go. I think that's I think that's a good distinction there because you know thinking about SEO specifically as a channel. Um mm-hmm. because I think probably of all the marketing, the sort of traditional digital marketing channels, we have the least control over exactly who is coming to our pages. Um, because we, you don't, as much as you want to optimize for relevant keywords for your website, you can't control exactly who's searching for that and exactly what they want to find. Whereas say you were marketing an article through social media advertising, you would be able to put in all of your audience targeting information and sort by demographic or a kind of, uh, interested topics or, or whatever. Um, and you would you know, that to use your analogy, Ed, you would be marketing to the people who would just be like your friend who are squarely in that group of definitely interested in reading in depth, finding all of the information and spending time. Whereas when you're wanting to achieve SEO success and using Paul's distinction between successful articles and good articles, it's not enough to just have interesting content in that article. It has to be presented quickly enough and engagingly enough to capture the people who may be slightly further away from your sort of dead center ideal audience yeah that's a a really good point really i think it's also important to think about like what is the end goal of the article because i mean Mm. i suppose we're using the term article again like we're kind of naturally going towards what sounds like informational content yeah again like i'm looking at the uh this this kind of study here and they're using like the apple watch page for example like yeah the goal of the goal of that content piece that page is very different and so i suppose as i think again like using your kind of like sort of example ed is that the first person is probably someone that they're looking to convert and second person who's kind of 
received the article second hand yeah. or third hand um i don't think you need to worry too much because like yeah. i said like how, how can you anticipate you know if person a sends it to person b who's in a completely different demographic and has completely different needs or outlooks on on whatever the topic is at hand so i think really like you serve your faithful consumers you serve your direct um kind of audience the most yeah. and you know if things fall in line for secondary tertiary great if not then you know you're still going after the highest conversions the the most appropriate audience and i think that's yeah. going to still lead to kind of more success in the long term yeah so with um say for example with more long-form content where say for example there is a topic where it needs to be well it, it's looking like it is like over a thousand two thousand words uh because yeah. that's what the content needs do you feel like things such as like for example on medium they have the reading time so a user can get you can guess how long how long the content is but then also a short synopsis at the start like say for example what you'll learn from this article and bullet points do you feel like that cheapens the approach or actually there are actually good measures in place to keep the user engaged from the get-go yeah. to know that the reading times that the you've got the bullet points summarizing a lot of things that are going to be coming up that's going to be enough interesting to them as well i think it's a bit of a necessity maybe yeah. a necessary evil i mean like if you're taking a piece of content that's like thousand plus two thousand words something that's like really really meaty and has got a lot in it it's very likely that it's going to be touching upon at least a couple of different points that all kind of connect to a greater piece and yeah. so specifically in search the chance that you're going to be ranking for like a broader set of keywords thus inviting a broader range of audiences to that page I think making sure that you have bulleted lists, kind of a, an index to kind of cut through kind of what each section of the article is going in with hyperlinks to jump to those sections. I think it's generally just, it's helpful for the user to find what they want. Mm. And I think it's generally only going to benefit your content at the end of the day, even if it might seem like it cheapens or like detracts from like the initial punchy you know, intro paragraph is 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 dropped down the page because you've got an index at the top. I, I don't think that's that's too big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah, and you can work around it as well. Like you can put your you can do your intro paragraph and then your little contents box or whatever it is. Like there are ways around it too if you yeah, really like get that punchy yeah, you, paragraph in straight away. Yeah, you can put the index across the kind of right hand side where Sort of as you said, like people typically start top left and then they'll scan across yeah. to the right. So they can hit that intro paragraph, scan across, see the index. If something catches their eye, jump to it. If not, keep going or bounce, whatever they fancy doing, you know, go on YouTube. Yeah. And I think on this, just to maybe end this, because I know we're going to have been talking about it in a while, is the um, something that I've never really thought about. But again, maybe it's because I don't really focus too much on this like specialist area, but the, the level of focus. So how focused or unfocused a user is at a task in hand. So again, I was mentioning around like the mortgage thing, because obviously people will need to read a lot of information into that. Do you guys ever considered how, well, do you guys, will you guys, if I, I guess consider how focused the user is when researching a specific article like i said if it's something that is quite 
well, I'm trying to find the, think of the word to describe it, where a, a user is more likely to invest their time in terms yeah. of reading, reading the content, whereas maybe you start to bring these measures into play to, for example, a user that's browsing more casually to engage them with them quicker, such as like a short synopsis or a brief description initially or anything like that. I, I don't... I don't think it's something I've thought about consciously, like not in the terms that this article's put it, but I yeah. can see parallels to what we've done. Yeah. So, uh, Ed, for example, we've worked together on an insurance client um, and mm -hmm. we were sort of really focused on one, one product page for them that was sort of absolutely core to their brand. And I think mm -hmm. some of the things that we thought about for that page overlap with what you're talking about because we were recommending things like you need to have your introduction, you need to have a clear inquiry button pretty quickly, uh, you need yeah. to have your USPs and your price comparison in sort of within easy access, and then going further down the page, that's where you can have your links to your other guides and your FAQs and all of that. And our reasoning to them was the more a user knows what they want to do when they come to the page, the, the less they need to scroll, essentially, and the less they... Yeah. Have, they're going to want to scroll because someone who knows they already want to buy from that brand or that they want that type of insurance, all they need to see is the inquire now button, maybe some quick pricing information and some USPs. Whereas yeah. someone who's not sure whether that package is right for them or doesn't really understand the product but is kind of interested, they're going to be more willing, they're going to be in that research phase essentially. They're going to be more willing to go down the page, look at the guides, look at the FAQs, gather all the information. Uh, and you can spend a bit more time trying to convince them. Um, although you've still got the USPs early on kind of doing the work and keeping them there, you know, in that for that first impression. So I think it's things like that, just trying to think how a user's engaging with this page. Um, and yeah. one of the things that stuck with me from um, Alex, who used to work at Impression as one of our designers, he just said it in a client meeting that I was in with him. Um, he just kind of said to the client that every page needs to have a purpose. Um, yeah. And it's just kind of stuck with me that if you're not giving uh, a purpose to a page and with that, you're not giving users something to do, like you're not giving users a clear area of focus, then the page is just going to sort of fizzle and not really have an impact. So yeah. there's that, that first impression and that clear next step from the page is really important. Um, and every page should kind of have intention baked into it. It shouldn't be an afterthought because that's when you're going to start losing people. Does that sort of make sense? Yeah, no, that's a that was a really good example regarding the insurance page. And yeah, I think that mentioned Alex in terms of yeah, every page having a purpose is definitely a key consideration for anyone contributing towards a website, whether that's a copywriter or a designer or anyone within uh, you know a web team. That should be the ultimate goal, right? Yeah, I think as well, it comes down to understanding one thing that I've kind of always thought about whenever I'm creating content, and this goes for both kind of e-commerce, kind of product-based content or informational content, it's kind of about the either the severity of the demand or the type of demand. So like when you look at something like, um, a, you know, I've, I was working on a content review for a boiler company recently. And a lot of the questions were things about high boiler pressure or is it dangerous or what should I do if my boiler isn't working? And they're all very immediate demands and they're all very, what I would call like severe demands in terms yeah. of there, there is a problem that is 
significant and needs a resolution. Whereas you look at another piece of content, like um, if we take again the Apple kind of uh, watch situation, you'll you know that the audience is looking for an experience. It's more of a the demand the the, the demand is not you know vital. It is something that they're looking to kind of almost be schmoozed a bit and kind of brought into it and the mm. you know the story of the piece and how this watch is going to make them feel. They they don't need to know that you know if their boiler pressure goes above four, it's going to explode. Like <laughs> you know, so I think thinking about that as well like what is the actual like is this a time critical is this a high like demand or is this kind of something where you can actually spend time to kind of bring them into the in, into the world of, a bit more yeah no that, i definitely agree with that yeah. and there's nothing more frustrating than when i want a quick answer and you have to cut through about four paragraphs of waffle to get there just from yeah. experience <laughs> and outside of search have you ever got i mean i know this is not really relatable but uh, outside of search whenever you're like trying to fix something on the computer and you're following the youtube guide when it's like introduction of like oh. it's like an intro to, it's like an intro like uh, visual thing then the person explains about their channel and stuff like that and you like it's four minutes in before you actually get to what you need i know have you, have you actually noticed that they've actually added um kind of an index feature in YouTube. yeah yeah that's on the timeline isn't it it's like it's highlighted really cool. in orange of like yeah, it's yeah. suggested when that's when actually people at tips start taking interest or something yeah. well yeah but they've, they've actually got all the different i'm noticing a lot like i don't know whether it's something that the user has to like the, the uploader has to actually input or whether it's yeah. like youtube like is sort of you know using some newfangled algorithm or something but it's actually putting in like um headlines and different sections within the broader video yeah. so like i was watching like a, a pc component review it was like a graphics card or something and, and they had like all the different sections like introduction you know about the card architecture benchmark results it was really really yeah. useful i suppose that's the same thing like letting the user letting the user make their own decisions on what they want to read yeah yeah absolutely should we should we go to the some of the other questions for paul uh yeah and, uh, I think there's loads of sort of related stuff to this, and we're probably going to come back to a lot of these topics um, and sort of just still look more in depth about writing content online. But we've got a few different angles to go at. Um, I think we'll stick we'll stick with the sort of content angle first, actually, because we've got some questions around SEO specialism uh, versus generalism uh, and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. which I think we do want to touch on. But we had some questions from the team just around other aspects of content writing that I think it would be really good to bring up here. Um, so there's there's some that are a bit more general and some that are more specific. Um, but I'll start with a general one and just see where we go with it. Uh, this is actually from Liv, who was on the podcast last month. Uh, for anyone who listened to that episode, and if you haven't listened to it, uh, then I recommend going back to listen to it because it was a really good discussion. Um, but Liv has asked for you, Paul. Um, are there any tips you would give to SEOs and or copywriters uh, who want to improve their skills in writing copy, um, specifically with kind of on-page optimization in mind? Um, and are there any kind of resources or any, uh, I suppose, tips or guides or anything you could point people in the direction of to help people improve? Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Off the top of my head, I think it just comes down to, and I've said this before, and I may have even been the person that delivered that previous training. I think back. you were. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, um, but it's just not overplaying your hand, um, especially if you're writing about something which perhaps you're a bit less comfortable with, mm. or even if it's something like that you know out the back of your hand, like just writing within your comfort levels. Like yeah. the second that you're having to, you know, pull up thesauruses or Google Words to see what the meaning is. Like that's when you kind of need to just stop yourself and just say, you know, is there a simpler way that I can that I can do this? Is there a simpler way that I can explain what I'm trying to put forward? Because if you try and kind of stretch yourself in terms of your writing kind of style, then it's it's going to actually hamper the content overall. I don't think you need to write with, you know, multi-syllabic words in long stringed out sentences to, to end up like with a good piece of content. I think you can be, you know, in fact, you know, I'm sure like anecdotally, you know, 70, 80% of the average reader aren't going to, you know, engage with that kind of type of content. Well, they're going to actually much prefer something that's simple, direct, uses, you know, pretty standard kind of vernacular. Yeah. That's generally my first, piece of advice and one other thing that I always always really like to do and recommend it's not really a resource per se but whenever you're creating content I, I you know I, you kind of get that kind of like backspace paralysis that I see people fall into a lot where they'll type something delete it type something delete it type something delete it and yeah. they'll say the same thing five times and never really get anywhere one of the biggest sort of like step changes that I took when I started to write more content was to never delete what you're writing okay. instead yeah. instead just comment it immediately if you get a vibe if you if you write a sentence and you immediately think oh, i'm not sure about that highlight yeah. it put a comment in and just say reads a bit funky it doesn't have to be prescriptive it can just be you know not sure about the tone of voice here or not sure if i'm saying the right thing and just come back to it later because you'll have a fresh pair of eyes and it's going to allow you to just get what you need to say out and then you can prune the content back at a later date rather than trying to edit and create at the same time. Yeah, that, that's I am, nice. I am like notoriously bad for like writing blog posts. It just takes me ages to get the content <laughs> out. So I feel like that piece of advice really hits home for me because of what I had the issue is that coming up with the introduction and then like doing it in a structure. So like starting from the beginning, the introduction, and if I can't get the first sentence out, I'm just like going back and deleting it. Whereas something that really helped me exactly what you said, Paul, is just getting it out there and just writing it. It doesn't need to sound perfect because no one else is reading it. And once you have it out there, what you'll notice is you'll find yourself getting a lot more done in a quicker space of time. And then you just go back and then actually, it's not as bad as you first read it. And you can also just edit it in a way and it sounds good. And it's just, yeah, yeah it, for me, what's really helped is just persevering with it and just, like I mentioned, just getting it out there and revisiting it, you know, in a few paragraphs time or something, because then at least there'll be more structure to support it as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just jump in as well with one quick tip along the lines of what Paul was saying around, uh, I guess, sort of overwriting and just sort of making things more complex than they need to be. I think as well as word length and word complexity i think the same applies to sentence length and complexity um yeah. and i see this i've seen this so much in myself um, over the last few years um and also sort of i one of the things i do at impression is run internships for uh, english students uh, every year 
and I also have worked for with with other students for a while and you can tell students who are used to writing sort of flowery essay style content and trying to sound kind of very academic um and very um I don't know just kind of very highbrow content I don't really know how to describe it um but one of the sort of features uh possibly bugs um as part of that is just that the sentence structure tends to be just crazy um you'll get all sorts of um connectives and commas where you just don't need them and sometimes just putting in a full stop after just a single clause in the sentence is absolutely fine and go on and write the next sentence um and if you're having you know i find if you get to the point where you've got four or five clause sentences over multiple lines and uh, you, you look at a whole paragraph and you realize that that paragraph is just a sentence um, that's actually going to be quite hard for people to read and quite hard to follow um, and even if you don't do it when you're writing the content if it's something you go back and look at once you're proofreading and editing just chopping up some sentences and simplifying the structure of your paragraphs I, I find makes content much easier to read and digest yeah absolutely the simpler it is the less mistakes you can make to be also true <laughs> to be basic about it it's just yeah yeah you can always tell when someone hasn't quite got a semicolon down <laughs> <laughs> or something like that you just don't need to use them no sorry i didn't laugh there because that's just such a lame <laughs> content thing <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah it's one of those things though because you do like you get when you work in an industry where there are lots of arts students coming into it as we both are paul like this yeah. thing it does happen though and it is worth saying because so yeah. stuff is just baked into the sort of the essays and the book even just you know the books and the academic writing that we're reading as students yeah and you absolutely. just don't need it so the next question is coming from Chloe, uh, another member of our SEO team. And she has asked, uh, how much of a role do uh, persona and audience information, maybe from a more traditional marketing point of view, play in the writing of content for a site versus the kind of information we can infer from uh, keyword data and, and search intent and the existing search results? Yeah, so I think... Um, for me, from my experience, they tend to actually play a bit more of a um, combined role in kind of working sure. against each other. I think that as an SEO, we're always going to be optimizing for search first and yep. trying to make sure that we're hitting, you know, appearing in the right search for the keywords that we've identified as, as key performers for that page. Um, but I think in terms of like actually looking at the search landscape, you can infer a lot about the audience from the intent um you know wh whether it is informational whether it is transactional um and also kind of the actual the competitors that are performing in there like yeah. you know you can i think you can gather a lot from that and it's a challenge that i've had recently with a client who essentially works as a like a cloud analytics database provider so very high level stuff yeah. very technical content um and a lot of their you know a lot of their search landscape is informational in nature. Yeah. Um, mm. Just primarily because, you know, if I say hybrid, you know, analytics database deployment or multi-parallel <laughs> processing database, like 
and you know i don't think that many people yeah. listening will have an understanding of what that is it took no. me a while <laughs> yeah i think when this also and what you can i think what you mentioned paul of actually learning from the search landscape can be vitally important i think some good tips around this is i mean this may not always be the case but if you're like a, a, a say for example a new startup or a company trying to get into a field where there's a lot of giants you it's probably the case that these companies have been invested in learning about their customers for years like mm, yeah. 10 20 years so actually their product pages i mean this may not always be the case but their product pages or informational pages or anything like that have probably used this data to inform them of what their users want so you can that's why you should take a lot of influence and from it in my opinion mm. and i think my next point is probably sometimes probably a bit too relatable maybe to the e-commerce side of things, but actually look online of what people are praising around a certain service or product. So if you're actually looking into the reviews of a certain company and potentially even creating a word cloud, I know that's something quite simple, but actually right. seeing the key phrases that they refer to in a positive light, whether that be, I don't know, good account management, but from a product basis, what you could do is, look into the Amazon reviews of that product and actually see what are the common themes that people tend to praise. If you want to do something that's maybe like you said with this client, what's more, maybe a little, little more tech focused is actually look into the company reviews if there are any and actually see what people are rewarding or talking about in a positive light. And then that can really kind of, I guess, focus on what people look for in content or look, mm -hmm. you know, basically identify what they, you know, essentially is like quite important to them. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, like, for me, like, I tend to find that personas and kind of audiences, I always feel like that kind of works better on a bit more of a macro scale. So kind of looking a bit bigger picture, mm. I tend to find that you will have an audience for a section of your website. So yeah. there'll be a rather than an in on an individual page level. I think like intent and search landscape play more of a role on a per page level. And I yeah. think that audience and persona is more important to consider on a broader level when you're thinking about the silo, when you're thinking about stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And uh, we've got some stuff related to that as well. I, I suppose related in the sense of considering maybe some more traditional marketing considerations. Um, there's a couple of questions here, well, one which I sort of thought of in advance and one from Chloe uh, again, um, which I think kind of I can group together. Um, so when you've got, when you're working with a business who maybe they've got their personas in mind uh, and they want to talk to them in a certain way, or they just have quite a clearly defined brand and a clearly defined tone of voice, uh, what can we do as SEOs to um, I suppose, A, keep them on board and write content that they're actually happy to put on the site. Uh, and B, you know, what are what kind of tools are actually available to us as writers to uh, adjust tone of voice and write content that our clients are happy with while still um, while still kind of keeping SEO best practice in mind? Uh, that's a tricky one. Um, yeah. I guess it comes down to kind of how um, how kind of receptive the client or the, the, the team is 
in terms of engagement with SEO because I think there's always a bit of a push and pull between creating something that is optimized for search. Unfortunately, this is true. Like I know that we say that Google is getting awesome at being more human and stuff, and that is absolutely true on a number of levels, but I still think there is a fundamental difference between creating content for search and creating content for social or just pure user benefit, you know? It's the reason why we have like fiction and non-fiction, you know, fiction's fun and flowery and non-fiction serious. And it's, it's, I kind of see it in the same vein. I think yeah. you just need to find a way to marry the two a little bit. Um, one thing that I've always found helps a lot in this situation is if they don't have an interest in SEO specifically um, in terms of their personal ideals or visions for a project or content piece or whatever you're doing, working on with them. Um, I think it's actually okay a lot of the times to let them lead, to let them create the content and you actually come in at that later stage yeah. and just and just pull pull the reins back a little bit and bring it back inside to a more optimized position because I think you're going to have much more success working with them than having them work with you. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point um and i think something that you know we've we probably both experienced in our careers um i don't know pushback on content that we've submitted you know you just i suppose you try you've tried so hard to match whatever this brand's tone of voice is and just for some reason maybe they've just got like one marketing manager who's in control of branded content or whatever and you just haven't matched their vision for it it just becomes this impossible sort of push and pull where you can't achieve what you want to achieve with the content and they're not happy because it's not the tone of voice they want. And I think, as you say, if you can let them lead from the start and say, okay, give me a framework or give me sort of the basics that you need to be happy with this content at the very least, then that's a much more constructive place to work out of rather than you just batting, you know, butting heads from from the get-go yeah Um, i think i think in terms of that as well like we kind of have to be confident that any of the projects or work that we're actually undertaking has already been to some extent verified as an seo opportunity yeah because because otherwise you know speaking from our perspective as an seo agency or as as seo it's like we, we we wouldn't recommend something that isn't going to have some form of impact. Yeah. So I think it's it's kind of that case of the difference between having no content on a certain topic and perhaps like content that's optimized seventy percent of the way there, but the client's really really happy with. Yeah. You still one one is still going to win out over the other. So I think yeah, it's just about you know. Yeah. And I think as well, we can just provide, if we provide what information we can as early as possible, like if we're clear with the client, there is opportunity in this keyword area. um, And we, you know, we want to optimize these pages to go for it. And they come back and say, well, look, we can't change the title of this page because it needs to be this way for this brand reason or whatever. Um, That's quite a classic thing with maybe categories or product pages. Yeah. Um, then I suppose 
you know, it's like why why are we fighting that as an SEO? Because if the if if the client or the or your manager, if you're working in house, is aware that that opportunity is there, but they have had that opportunity to evaluate it and say, actually, we want to maintain the brand here, then you don't need also you don't need to fight that battle anymore. You you've done your bit, and you don't need to keep pushing it. Yeah. And if they, yeah. you know, they look at that data and say, actually, yeah, you know, that's a good point. We need to we do need to be doing this, then then that's great. And then you have their buy-in and it should be a bit easier after that point to make the changes you need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, always provide the data that you can to showcase the need for something. I see it a lot with like brands that use kind of branded terms for products that are going after a generic need. So mm -hmm. like, you know, some sort of like, I don't know, I don't know why this is popping into my head, but like, I think I was watching an episode of Friends at lunch. And Monica had bought a mop. <laughs> you know, like pe people like you know, you can you can imagine some sort of brand that's created like the Mop Master six thousand and stuff, and like they've yeah. built this page out called Mop Master six thousand. Like, where actually the search is probably going to be like, you know, durable kitchen mop or whatever. Like, yeah. if you can provide them with the information to showcase that, I can't believe I've just used kitchen mops as, a, <laughs> as an example, but you get the point. Yeah, no, that that's exactly the kind of thing I, I was thinking of as well when I said that. And I, we've all had it where you just the 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 brand name is just never going to rank. You know, like there's no yeah. demand for the brand name, and but sometimes sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. And I think that's where you've just got to provide. You've just got to have the conversations and do your bit for gathering the data, yeah. and that's all you can do. Yeah. Uh, I'm just I'm aware of sort of the time on the episode, and I don't want to make it go too long. So I've just got one more kind of topic on content, um, and then I do want to just chat quickly about the sort of specialist approach to SEO as well. Um, but the last one on content, and I'll again I'm going to combine a couple of questions here. Um, was it's essentially around um, how is the role of content writing going to change um, with technologies like voice search? Um, and also with sort of emerging technologies around AI created or AI assisted content is, I suppose, is there going to be a fundamental change in content writing, do you think, or, or new skills that we have to learn? Or is it going to stay fundamentally the same as long as the internet kind of looks like it does? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how I think those are going to affect things. I think in terms of the voice search, I think we're probably already seeing some level of impact from that. Yeah. That probably plays into what we can do as content writers to kind of work towards voice search is actually, again, just echo some of the advice that I think both myself and you guys, Ben, is, is just to simplify things and just be really direct because the closer you match your kind of you know, general colloquial conversational voice and stuff like that, mm. um, the more successful your content's going to be. I don't think voice search is going to change our content creation efforts that much. I do think that AI will mm -hmm. to a greater detail um, because you have to think that essentially Google's kind of working in a reverse artificial intelligence content creation manner anyway. It's yeah. essentially reverse engineering our content, understanding intent, understanding what the content's about, and then matching that to search and the user need. Mm -hmm. So I think there is some sort of form of a world, especially with content creation at scale, yeah. um, 
and this is something that I think I've, I've touched on a few with a few clients in the past. Um, I think it's kind of a bit of a necessity in some respects. Yeah. I don't think it's going to replace content writers. And I also don't think that there's much that we can do about AI created content. Um, if it gets to the point where it's so effective that it's almost actually meeting the needs of Google better than a, than a human, then that would be pretty crazy. But yeah, I think there is some place for it, especially as I say, like content at scale, um, yeah. where it's just not humanly feasible. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I, I can see it for like meta descriptions or short product descriptions or something where there's quite a lot of defined information that it can pull in already. Yeah, yeah, product descriptions. Yeah, I mean, generally in e-commerce, I don't think you're ever going to get like AI created content surrounding like, you know, well-being while working at home or no. how to, you know, do a safe gym workout or something like that. But I do think you could absolutely... Um, and you can already, to some extent, do automated content creation, yeah. which is pulling from product specifications and things like that. And you can put in multiple different clauses, but there's still an element of human um, kind of creation in there to set up those parameters. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have a complete in Google Docs where it'll finish your sentence for you? Yeah, I mean, I've already put my thoughts out about that. Everybody what? needs to. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Ben. No, no, I was asking you what, 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 what are your thoughts on it? I think I missed it. Oh, um, I mean, I'm, I, I, I believe this is. I feel like I've been baited into a conspiracy theory talk here, but <laughs> I believe it. I'm going to buy. I believe that it's essentially just Google training. AI to understand us every time they suggest content, you know, or a finish to a sentence and you accept that, then they know they're doing the right thing and they're just oh, going to be training their algorithm to be better and better. Whether that's interpreting how we write or actually to create content, I'm not sure. I think it's one and the same, to be honest. I think they'll use it for Probably. both. But no, no, I agree. That's why they, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory to say that's why they give us this stuff for free. Um, yeah feeds into their future products one way or another and that's it we'll we'll stay away from the we'll stay away from the conspiracies too much in this podcast i feel like you can have, you can have your own separate podcast for that <laughs> yeah probably um cool should we just chat let, let's chat briefly about um specialism then just as it's a good opportunity with all three of us on this call i think um we've all chosen to go down a specialist route, whether that's me and Paul in content or you, Ed, in, in technical. So I suppose to put this out to both of you, really, and, and I'm sure I, I can chip in here as well, um, what, what was it that appealed to you about taking that route when it was offered to you, when Impression, as a company, decided that that was the way we were going to organize the department? What made you choose specialist rather than strategist? Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ed. You were the first one, weren't you? <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think from my perspective there was it wasn't just one thing and it was kind of yeah a variety of things I think what we did discuss last episode with Lib is that SEO in itself has changed and therefore the requirements to succeed in organic search requires like so many areas um it, it, it's it's very difficult to become like well it very diff it's very difficult to become 
to be uh, like a hybrid SEO where you are very good at content, you're very good at acquiring links, you're very good at understanding the latest technology, uh, techn yeah, technology advancements by Google, and therefore trying to keep on top of all those areas, you'd probably, it'll be a bit like spinning plates, and ultimately I think it would be quite hard to manage. So I think from that perspective, SEOs did used to focus on all areas um, initially, but now because it's so varied, that you need these uh, specialists areas. Um, mm. I'd say from my perspective, I also, it's from an enjoyment kind of thing as well. So I've, I got into SEO through like web design and web development. So technically I never really favored the content area. I yeah. knew I had to do it because I, I knew that it was required to be good at SEO, but then therefore when it started getting, I, I, I saw a need for technical SEO. I, I kind of gravitated towards that area because it's what, it's what interested me the most in terms of learning from computers and stuff like that. So I guess those two areas, I guess that made me, I think the the need to have specialists within SEO was basically created by Google's algorithm and search engine algorithms in terms of, like I said, it, each area needs its own time now. And then also just due down to personal what I enjoy and what I enjoy working with. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. For you, Paul. Yeah, pretty much. Um... Yeah, I mean, again, in terms of like how I believe like specialism has evolved in SEO, basically exactly what Ed said. It's just a case of even compared to four years ago, the nuances of each discipline within SEO is becoming you know so much more profound and so much more compartmentalized that it that, that you need a greater skill set to achieve in any single area. Mm. So it's, it's as Ed said, it, it does become harder and harder to generalize. Um, and kind of more efficient to specialize. And I think that's pretty much where it came down to for me. Um, you know, I've worked, I guess, sort of as a general SEO for three of my five years Yeah. in previous agencies and uh, impression for a time as well. And I think it definitely comes down to a case of wanting to ensure that I'm the most efficient I can be. Um, my the work that I'm delivering to clients is always of the highest quality. And certainly in, in the case of having these, these areas of specialism, you know, if we're able to ensure that, you know, technical audits are delivered always by a technical specialist and things like that, like it's going to increase our satisfaction for those individual people. Like I said, it's something that you enjoy. I enjoy content writing more than I do, you know, technical and, and, and link. Um, building and analysis mm. and it's just going to also be better for like the actual output as well so mm. i wanted to bring up this um point as well um i saw a tweet a few years ago and i think it was by tom critchlow and it said the seos of today are the cmos or chief marketing officers of tomorrow um and i yeah. that really stuck in my head because i feel like seo is a marketing discipline it teaches you so much um of marketing um in terms of every, I guess, area, um, when you think of like the content side of things, even down to like attribution and proving your worth and knowing where the investment needs to be made in terms of yeah. trend analysis, in terms of understanding the te tech side of it as well. It really yeah. does have so many factors that actually SEO itself is, if you are you know, wanting to become more of a broader marketer online, SEO is like well worth in you know learning about because I feel like it does help learn about so many areas of you know general marketing and also 
those areas too? Yeah, I think, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I, I just wanted to sort of add one thing to that is I think that while specialism ultimately, I think should always be the goal, I do want to say that there is absolute value. And I don't think that any of us would be, you know, as good as we are or if we're good or whatever, but like, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today and we wouldn't have that specialism if we didn't go through a period of being sort of more general SEOs, if that's the term. Yeah. I, I think there's so much value in, you know, no one, you know, being, especially if you're coming in at a, a more entry level position or junior position into like an SEO company or an agency, whether it's in house or not, like being able to actually engage with all those different factors. I've seen it so many times at Impression where we have um, analysts or executives who have worked across all of the spectrums and they've moved into PR, digital PR, because that's what they've enjoyed yeah. or they've started to work more closely with myself and you, Ben, or, or Ed and Charlie, um, kind of as, as their interests and skill set naturally acclimatizes to because, yeah, like they just require such different demands as, 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 as people. Yeah. So. yeah. I guess it just also, I think like what we're, doing here is really advocating specialism but making sure that there is specialism but also integration as well um so it's not a case of like you get stuck in your own bubble and actually you just only learn about the things that are relevant to you but actually keeping your learn about the other aspects of SAO as well and I think also Ben like when we've worked most recently on audits the best suggestions that we've done and implemented have been where it's you know coming at it from both angles and that's because you've understood it from a tech perspective but I sort of also understood it from a content side of things as well yeah absolutely and that's where there's still a need for generalists as well isn't there or yeah. or specialists who have a general background too because whether it's you know we've worked on an account together ed you, although I've done the content work and you've done the technical work, you've still had to sort of wear that overall kind of account manager hat almost of kind of keeping yeah. everything together. And there are there are people at Impression who, you know, that's their, as a strategist, as a generalist, that's their main focus is kind of being able to see the whole picture and understand what's needed when and prioritise work. And, you know, that that is a skill in itself and, and yeah. something, that you sort of, I think you need to be able to execute a strategy properly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Cool. So I, I think we'll we'll leave that there. Again, I think that's another interesting discussion that we could um, that we could spend more time on. But there was one final bit I wanted to get to, and I know Paul spent a bit of time on this in the notes, so I don't want to waste that either. Um, but it's actually another new segment that we're introducing, uh, a new yeah. SERP feature to add to our roster. Um, Ed, do you want to introduce it briefly and then we'll just uh, we'll hand straight over to Paul to talk about uh, the specifics of today. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the new feature is called the Map Pack uh, and this is basically interesting strategies for the bizarre world of local search. Um, so this spotlights on businesses that are trying new things or implementing interesting strategies to boost their local presence. Which was definitely um, believe this I gave you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I believe this specific topic is overcoming the COVID-19 challenges. Yeah, it's almost local SEO without being local SEO, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Go on. Uh, yeah, Paul, do you want to take this away? Because this was your idea. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, obviously so many businesses are going through challenges 
at the moment surrounding COVID-19, obviously sympathise with that. And it's something that we've seen obviously in, in our business and, and some of our clients. Mm. I just wanted to kind of highlight like working with um, actually not even necessarily a client, more of a prospect at the moment, but we've been, we've had multiple conversations with them. They're a great, great group. And they've been particularly kind of profoundly impacted by um, COVID-19 because they operate a range of kind of boutique fitness centers. Um, mm. So they, they deliver yoga, Pilates classes, um, barcore and, and things like that which inherently is very community driven um, yeah. very personal um, you know all of their locations have essentially been shut down out of absolute necessity um, and so the challenges that they've faced in terms of trying to deliver keep their business running and, and, and still still actually deliver on their, their, their customers has been really um, difficult. But I think essentially they've done a really good job um, and it's something that we've had conversations with them and, uh, and are also looking to work with them on more, hopefully. And they've, they've done a really good job of leveraging technology and digital SEO to move their operations online. They've started to leverage kind of, um, even through social media, they're creating content that's, allowing users to continue to engage with the brand at, um, you know, from home, whether that's online classes that they're now delivering and they've actually set up um, landing pages for that and content to support that. And they've got the actual platforms within there to allow that. And they've created like an actual secondary business funnel for that. Um, But also opportunities whereby, of course, they've done a really good job of thinking ahead in the long term so ultimately they are hoping to include online classes as a permanent feature so the work that they've done in creating these landing pages while it to some businesses it might seem um frivolous or you know they're wasting time because when it goes back to normal they'll be back in the you know their offices and it it won't matter actually working now to create something that's going to actually give them a secondary business model in the long term has been really beneficial. Mm, um, yeah. And I think another thing that they've done a really good job of that goes slightly more towards kind of the local SEO element of it is still considering, they've done a really good job of still considering the audience that they're, they want to be back in front of when this is all over. Um, so they operate in the London area. Um, and just allowing people to um, still continue to book classes and, and, and then have access to their online sessions in the interim. It's been a really good way of engaging the local search whilst still benefiting or at least um, acclimatizing to the current situation. So just to kind of out of interest, has it been difficult for them to switch to that online course model because I suppose if you're a business that has been up to this point pretty much 100% focused on physical locations local SEO uh, and that kind of approach has it been tough for them or, or have they been able to do it relatively quickly I think it's still a bit of a growth phase you know there's going to be some growing pains in that I certainly would hesitate to say it's been easy um, yeah I imagine it's been a pretty gargantuan task um, to get to, to get to the place where they are um, 
they've been pretty fortunate in that they have quite a lot of social following. So that's certainly given them additional um, traction where they yeah. might have struggled otherwise. Definitely. But fortunately, um, you know, search is surprisingly formulaic. And I think we can all agree on that in that, you know, trends are trends for a reason. So, you know, creating the content to meet the current demand of search, you know, people are searching for, you know, online yoga classes, um, Pilates classes from home and, and things like that. They've done a good job of kind of trying to capitalize on that and meet the demands. Um, yeah. So. I was going to mention just about your, it was really interesting, your point about the actual long term of this. So companies that think maybe investing in this is going to be, you know, potentially a waste of time because they only have to do it for like three months and then everything will be returning back to normal. But actually, this scenario here is probably going to impact the way people are for the long term as well. And I'd probably give it my position as well. So I pay a monthly gym subscription, but ever since, you know, self-isolation has come into play, I've been using the night training app and I can basically use it whenever I want. And therefore, when everything does go back to normal, I am considering, you know, maybe I don't need a gym membership and that I can do my gym, you know, workouts from home. And that may be the case for this scenario you said you just mentioned that actually they're going to be doing online yoga classes where maybe websites that are maybe just like waiting for this to kind of blow over that demand may not be as big because people are referring to online yoga classes um because they saw the benefit in that and therefore the companies that are adapting to this structure now for the long term are the ones that are going to benefit from it as well yeah yeah absolutely and obviously it does come with its own challenges of course there are going to be businesses that can't you know that can't remain open for the foreseeable and, and have to close and, and obviously you know we can only sympathize with that but i think if you are able to kind of weather the storm and continue to push forward as best as you can and sort of think for that long term um be creative about your approach i think yeah there's definitely going to be um some benefits you can have i can think of you know situations in terms of again kind of thinking about long-term future proofing like so, you know, we hear a lot about kind of restaurants that have moved into delivery services only. Yeah. Um, there's absolutely no reason why they couldn't take that kind of approach and, and continue to offer that moving forward. Mm. Um, whether they will, another factor. I think as well what you said there about sort of the, the social channel for this particular business, I think at a time like this, it's worth bearing in mind as well that SEO isn't always the quickest channel if you want to make changes. Um, no. And while it's it's vitally important for the long term, um, using social media, social advertising, paid advertising, all of that is is pretty much essential if you're trying to launch brand new services now. Um, yeah. That's the only way you're going to build the audience quick enough, realistically. Unless you're, you know, if you're a hyper powerful website, you may get your top ranking within a couple of days. But you know, most small businesses realistically aren't in that position, um, and that's where really using all the tools at your disposal is vital. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I think we'll probably leave it there for this episode. I think we we have covered a lot of ground today. Um, yeah. Thank you, thank you very much, Paul, um, for spending time on this uh, and joining us today. Um, yeah, it's been thank awesome you. To have you on. Um, so the I suppose the final question for you that we ask everyone at the end of the show um, is: Are you sort of active anywhere on social media? Do you have any other sort of resources or articles or anything that you want to mention uh, just just as we finish up here? 
Uh, nah, not really. Um, not really. <laughs> Do you have a Twitter? I, I can't remember following you on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I don't use social that much. Um, I'm going to change my name anyway, so it'd be really confusing if everyone goes looking for Paul Smith and doesn't find me. So, yeah. nah, I, I'm, I'm like, as I said, I'm the old hermit of the office. I kind of keep to the shadows. <laughs> so essentially, what you're saying is people who need your wisdom should just come back and replay this episode over and over again because that is the most surefire way to hear your pearls. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'll I do plan to blog a bit more um, yeah. on the impressions site, so um, maybe this will spur me on, give me some kind of uh, accountability to actually do it. Um, give the people what they need, or give the people yeah. what they want. Yeah, or you know, if you if you really really want to get in touch with me, uh, my Discord name is. Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> this is the real talk at the end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you may never hear this, but uh, for about ten fifteen minutes before recording started, it was pure video game chat. So uh, if yeah. you if you want to find Paul for the stuff he's really interested in, then uh, <laughs> you can you can hunt him down on Discord. Pretty much. Awesome. So I think that is everything for uh, this month's Rank Up podcast episode. Uh, and we will be back next month uh, with more on-page SEO topics and debate. In the meantime, uh, we would massively appreciate it if you could leave a review on the podcast app of your choice. While we're still a new podcast and trying to get off the ground, that is by far the most helpful thing for us. Um, those five-star rankings do make a huge difference in the uh, different podcast apps' own algorithms. Uh, and if we're going to get more visibility in an organic way, uh, which obviously is, is the goal of this and the goal of our whole careers, uh, then, then we need your help with that. And um, so we massively appreciate any reviews, comments, uh, in, interactions, however you want to show your appreciation. That would be fantastic. Um, and if you do want to send in any questions for future guests or chat about SEO or just sort of throw abuse at me or Ed, not too much, please, uh, you can find us both on Twitter. Uh, I am at Ben J. Gary with two R's in Gary. Uh, and Ed is at EdJTW with two D's in Ed. Uh, yes, we have chosen, well, not chosen. We've been given two of the, two of the most difficult names for you to find organically through Twitter. Um, but yes, you, you can find us there and we will respond if you want to get in touch with anything. Um, and we are a monthly podcast, but if you cannot wait a whole month for your next helping of digital marketing content, uh, then please do go and check out our colleague Jess Hawkes' digital PR podcast. Uh, that is Outspeech and it's also available anywhere where you find podcasts. Uh, and also uh, have a look at the Impression blog. You can find all of our episodes there and you can also find lots of great written content from the team at Impression. Uh, and that is all over at impression.co.uk. Uh, so that is everything. Paul, thank you very much once again. Uh, Ed, uh, thank pleasure. you for your time as always. Uh, and we will be back next month with your next installment of On Page Conversations.